Welcome to the last day of Season 1, Episode 7 coverage with the archive episode where I read uh, my responses to this episode in the past. I read what fans said. The media had a lot to say about this back in 1990. So looking over all of that material and digging into that. And then near the end of the show, I'll talk about, uh, the, or near the end of this uh, podcast, I'll talk about the shape of the show, um, reading pieces, or just discussing things that maybe relate to the overall structure, were created after it. And uh, finally, we're going to end with the first minute of the next episode. And uh, it picks up where this one left off, more or less. Um, nothing particularly spoilery about it, I don't think. But uh, you can judge for yourself whether you want to watch that episode if you're watching the series for the first time uh, before you hear that first minute and get a little teaser taste of it. And that episode's going to be the season one finale. And there will be a lot to say about that and where that kind of stands in this Lost in Twin Peaks uh, podcast uh, release. But I'll talk about that tomorrow. For now, let's jump into the archives. We're now approaching the finale, and this is all the stuff that kind of ran up to the finale. You have one piece that was published the day after, but it doesn't reference what happens in the next episode, so I think it's okay to share. First up, we have Actress's First Big Role, Playing Dead by Martha Southgate, in the New York Daily News on May 23rd, 1990. And she writes, Cheryl Lee looks pretty good for a dead woman. Lee, 23, plays Laura Palmer, the murdered high school girl whose name is on everyone's lips in Twin Peaks. The dramatic series produced by David Lynch ends its first half season tonight at 10 p.m. WFTV Channel 9. The series has been renewed for next fall. In a recent interview, Lee was charming, vivacious, and thoughtful. Kind of the way you would expect Laura to be, although she doesn't coordinate a Meals on Wheels program, nor is she secretly dealing cocaine, both of which Laura did. She also plays Laura's look-alike cousin, Madeline Ferguson, who recently came to town to help care for her aunt and uncle, who have been driven nearly mad by Laura's death. Madeline has been drawn into the morass of mystery in Twin Peaks, something that Lee hopes will continue. Anybody can be killed off at any time on this show, she says cheerfully. Who knows what will happen? But Maddie's alive and well, and she does become involved in what's going on. Lynch spotted Lee, then an aspiring Seattle-based actress, in an educational video she had done and asked her to have, uh, to have her come in and audition for Laura. At the time, Maddie didn't exist. Lee laughs as she remembers. My sister went out and rented Lynch's film, Eraserhead, when she found out I was going to be working with David, and she called me the next day and said, I don't know if I want you working with this guy. It's so funny because David is this amazingly creative man, but he is just so nice and warm-hearted and kind as a person. So Lee is happy, despite the hard way she had to play Laura. And as for who her murderer is? I know who it is. I was there, she says, but I can't tell you. That's okay. For Twin Peaks fans, getting there is half the fun. Next article is Twin Peaks Headed for Fall by Rick Kogan for the Chicago Tribune, May 23, 1990. And he writes, Too bad. I think Twin Peaks should not, that's right, not, be returning as a regular series. Hear me out. I love the show, have spent each of the last six Thursday nights glued to the tube, and each Friday morning have discussed what I saw there at length. It's airing this Wednesday so that ABC can capitalize on the last day of the Nielsen-measured sweeps. Though it attracts a relatively modest 18-19% to 19 of available viewers, good numbers, considering the competition from NBC's highly rated Cheers, the program's audience consists of huge numbers of younger women viewers, the audience that advertisers covet most. But all of the rational reasons, however justifiable, cannot make me think that whatever we see on Twin Peaks in the fall 
will not appear commonplace to what we've seen over the last weeks. It will never be as exciting, stimulating, or rewarding as was the Twin Peaks we have known so far. What we've known was essentially an episodic movie, and transforming it into a series presents a number of problems. Spending times with the Twin Peaks that concludes Wednesday was like a great vacation in a place you've never been. Watching the series, I'm afraid, will be like looking at pictures of that vacation. Interesting, perhaps, evocative, but without the fire of being fresh. And Ed Siegel in the Boston Globe continued with this theme the next day with his article, Twin Peaks May Weaken as a Weekly, published May 24, 1990. What Lynch and ABC should have done, he said humbly, was compromise between a finite and an ongoing series. Twin Peaks might have been a perfect limited series where, say, twice a year, it would have come on with a six-week run of episodes. That way, Lynch and Frost would have had time to put the extra effort into it that could give Twin Peaks its old glimmer back or even maintain it at its current level. When Frost was on Donahue Monday, he talked about the extended grief sequence as an indicator that violent crime has real consequences that most television shows don't deal with. That was true of Twin Peaks in its early incarnation, but no longer. Frost, of course, was being slightly disingenuous. Fans of Twin Peaks don't tune in looking to meditate on the consequences of violent crime. They tune in looking for a good time. In that sense, Lynch and Frost are no different from the producers of Dallas and Dynasty, giving the people what they want. So we're seeing an interesting mixed response, even from fans of the show, to the idea that the show is going to be renewed. A little bit of trepidation that, hey, this was a great springtime phenomenon, but do we want this to be an ongoing series? So we'll see how they pick up with that. Over the summer and in the fall, next episode, I'm actually going to read a lot of pieces that were written in the summer following season one, leading up to the premiere. Actually, the most hyped point of Twin Peaks was not during season one. It was leading up to the season two premiere. There were books published, magazine covers, and just that was its real peak as a pop culture phenomenon. The fans of this time, they obviously had their own thoughts. And by the way, before I get into that, I should mention, I am going to include some more media pieces in the Shape of the Show uh, discussion because there are some speculation that's interesting at the time who people thought the killer might be. For the Usenet alt.tv Twin Peaks board that was like, the proto-internet discussion area for the show at the time. Kem Luther on May 20th, 1990 wrote, No matter how this wraps up, we are surely going to see some post-mortem analysis about what made this so watchable. Let me jump in early, since my comments don't depend on who gets nailed for the murder. One, the initial impression from the pilot that everyone in town was eminently certifiable was unique. Standard evening TV casebooks say that quirky people are either funny or dangerous. Casting them as normals made them anti-normal, anti-soap. TP thus became a strong social comment and intelligent viewing, since ordinary tube fare is neither. Did anyone else notice how much TP felt like a book instead of a TV program? The medium and the message were not aligned. It looked like a, it took a TV plus VCR to see it correctly. However, the series was destined to lose most of this edge of reality feeling, if for no other reason than it had to keep going, speaking from a little box and protecting its market share. TV consumes all. If it is renewed as a series, it will not be a victory for creativity. It will be a signal that another challenge to video mindlessness has been met and conquered. Let it die. Number two. The character of Dale Cooper was the show's highlight for me. It has been pointed out several times that he seems to have super detective capabilities. This is not correct if the word detective is defined by the models of modern detective ship. Conan Doyle launched the model with Holmes. 
The perfect sleuth is the perfectly rational person, applying logic to analytic observation. So Poirot, so Magris, so Sam Spade, so all. A Clouseau is funny because he solves the case, even though he's absolutely imperfect. But Cooper does not work within this model. His weapon is intuition, and his method is receptivity. He believes that the crime solves itself, that all the solver has to do is accept the revelation. When all the facts are collected, Holmes can follow the deductive thread. Cooper, however, assembles the evidence to evoke the dream. The solution to the crime is the interpretation of the dream. Lynch didn't invent this model. It is the work of Douglas Adams, as far as I can tell. Cooper is Dirk Gently. But Cooper is, I think, a more effective example of this model than Gently. Perhaps because Gently is, to this point, confined to books, where the presuppositions of normality are not so strong as the visual medium. If the TV moguls are listening, how about bringing Cooper back in a series of Gently-style stories? The rest of Twin Peaks can be moved to the afternoon, where it increasingly belongs. Here's a comment from Dave Gross on May 20th, 1990 want to point out something. I'll let you make what you will of this comment. This is several days before ABC actually announced that the series was coming back, so take that as you will. Here's what Dave Gross wrote uh, in the form of a news article that he had clipped, supposedly. Twin Peaks, here to stay. Network execs find Coffee and Donuts crew captures a difficult age group. On Wednesday, Americans may finally know who killed Laura Palmer and the many secrets she holds. But meanwhile, network executives are trying to discover the secrets of Twin Peaks' success and its secret in tapping into a hard-to-hold age group at its time slot. While Twin Peaks has been losing the older crowd that tunes in for Father Dowling mysteries in the preceding slot, they've made great gains in the 20 to 30-something crowd and, to the surprise of the network executives, even the 10 to 20 age group. We now know that a mystery format, if it has personalities that are interesting and somewhat quirky, can succeed in both a children's and an adult market, said Mark McPherson, speaking at a news conference for the network. McPherson is confident that he can keep the younger viewers despite the decision to show the season finale at 10 p.m. Wednesday night. We believe that no parent is going to be able to keep a dedicated son or daughter from seeing the end of the mystery, no matter what the time. Not only are executives confident that they can hold on to the younger set, but they feel they can capture the older viewers who were alienated by the bizarre twists and turns of the plot and by the lack of resolution by show's end. Bessie Clary, who has been in charge of coordinating the various directors of the season's episodes, will be in charge of the new direction Twin Peaks will be taking next season. We envision a more encapsulated version of Twin Peaks, with a single mystery being raised and solved each episode. Of course, the strange elements will still be there, Lucy's remarks and Cooper's personality, but these will take backstage to a more easily digestible plot. Early suggestions are that Twin Peaks will have a format very similar to Father Dowling Mysteries or Murder, She Wrote, but with just enough of the macabre touch initiated by David Lynch to maintain the interest of the younger viewers. Is the network confident that they can keep the younger viewers watching? McPherson thinks so. It's become a fad already. We think it'll outlast The Simpsons. Never underestimate the power of a cult following with teens and preteens. Rumors have even been flying that consultants from Kasparian Sklar, the company that handled the licensing of Beetlejuice models and action figures, have been contacted to discuss marketing a line of Peaks-related odds and ends. Shelby Carpenter, vice president of Kasparian Sklar, confirmed that they have been talking with the network, but declined to discuss what the discussion entailed. Tom Neft uh, responded to this comment on May 21st, 1990 and said, Hey, these guys are in business to make money. What did you expect? Nor is an encapsulated format necessarily the kiss of death. Net users rave over shows like Star Trek, Beauty and the Beast, and The Avengers, among a zillion others, all with encapsulated formats. The 44-minute teledrama is a restrictive format, but in the right hands, 
it can be a refreshing opportunity to branch out in new directions each week. And of course, two-parters are always possible. Still, I'm disappointed ABC isn't heading towards some of the other possible formats, like a monthly two-hour TV movie or a miniseries. I think they may be mischaracterizing the audience just a bit. The difficult segment TP brought back to the tube does not want to sit through a conventional hour of crime drama week after week for a year. If they did, they'd be watching MacGyver already. The fad nature of TP shouldn't be ignored. It's something to get excited about for a couple months at a time, max. After that, it starts to pall. The emotional intellectual fervor is draining. If they did it as a mini twice a year, a wide spectrum of people might get as excited as hell, tape everything, trade notes, etc., just as we are now. If it goes weekly, only pre-converted tapehead fanatics will care, and it'll die after a season. My personal decision hinges on Lynch. If he is involved at a level more detailed than executive producer or created by, I'll watch. But if he deserts the new format, so will I. And then, lo and behold, uh, later that day, ABC actually made the official announcement that Twin Peaks had been renewed for a second season. And Dave Gross returned uh, the next day, May 22nd, to say, The above article was a hoax. Forget it. It's not true. Ignore, please. But I did manage to cause widescreen panic now, didn't I? And you even believed the Beetlejuice stuff. Jeez. Imagine little Dale Cooper and Leo Johnson action figures. Twin Peaks cereal. Sorry for frightening everyone, so I just thought that an exaggeration of all our worst fears might provide a few laughs. I hope I didn't turn you all off for the next season. Robert Stephen Glickstein responded to this with, Diane, I've just arrived at the Great Western Hotel to investigate the murder of Dave Gross. It follows ten years almost to the day the murder of the young man who prematurely leaked the information that Darth Vader, and for those of you who have not seen the Star Wars trilogy, I will not spoil it. Rich Rosen wrote on May 23rd, 1990, This is it, kids, the conclusion of the final episode of Twin Peaks. Ready? Okay. Pete Martell wakes up to find himself in a dingy apartment in a monochromatic post-post-industrial world with a strange noise-making baby and says, So, it was all a dream. Laura Palmer sings a song about heaven, and Pete looks around the room and finds Suzanne Plachette sleeping next to him. And oh yeah, Pete has a new haircut. What do you think? Many years after that, when I was getting uh, back into Twin Peaks in 2014, on the Dugpa forum, I asked for memories of the show from fans who had watched it, particularly at the time, but really anybody. And uh, for the most part, I was asking about certain big turning points of the show, but a few people responded about season one in general. And... I'm going to include both of those in the Shape of the So section because they include speculation. Uh, again, from the standpoint of what the viewers were watching, uh, you know, when they were watching it back in 1990, so they don't know what's going to happen. They're remembering what they or the people they were watching with thought. But nonetheless, I like to isolate those types of speculations in case people just want to watch the episode and not even hear about other people's theories. However, I do want to make a rare exception in this in this part where I'm usually just sticking to that thread by reading this comment from another Dugba thread, which I think beautifully sums up how this particular episode captures a certain quality of the show. It comes from, appropriately enough, the user who goes by the screen name, Audrey Horn. They wrote, I have a confession. If a gun was pointed to my head and I had to pick one episode of Peaks, this would be the one. I know there's no Lynch or Uncanny, but it's probably the one I rewatched the most. And Peyton's script is so cheeky and fun. It's his best work. I'm sure this is the one episode that made Audrey the fan favorite at the time. And the cherry stem is only one of many stellar moments for her in this installment. The rewriting of the opening is wonderful. Where it was once ambiguous and playful of Cooper and Audrey having breakfast, the change makes their union and friendship all the better. 
where in earlier episodes it was playful and sexy, now it is sweet, tender, and more enriched. Malt, fries, Norman Rockwell sweetness. I loved it with her sigh and smile when he leaves the room. She's probably more in love with him than ever before. This scene is the heart of Peaks to me. And the rest of the episode shows why the character of Audrey is the only one that is Cooper's equal in terms of worth, ingenuity, spunk, wit, finesse. I love her quote, you know, there's a real bad accident out front. It sounds like a bus or something. Like a chess game where she takes out pawns. Just brilliant. Note Fenn's subtle smirk when she removes the stock boy. A wonderful moment. Smoking in the closet might be my favorite touch. Some people complain about the practicality, and it just tells me we view the show differently. Peaks is a stylized world, and this clinches it. Audrey is allowed to smoke and not get caught because it shows her confidence in knowing Jenny and Battis are also pawns to her. They could have had her laying across the desk in front of them, and I would still have bought it. And it is just so noir. Nancy drew with a bite. I also love the short scene of her placing the letter under Cooper's door and caressing the door. The shot of her saddle shoes, the music shifting from her jazzy motif to ominous when she makes eye contact with the Japanese businessman. Wonderful. I believe in Altman's book it was noted this was done at the last minute. So glad it was included. And of note, notice her appearance. It matches the deleted scene of learning she is the cause of Johnny's condition. We'll talk about that in a second. Sad the scene was cut since it reinforces the motivation of going to one-eyed Jacks on her own. Fenn submitted this episode and got her Emmy nod for it. And we also have Nadine eating bonbons, Waldo's death, and the Maddie as Laura, really screwing with all our heads. And Cooper and Ed as Fred and Barney. Just a great, great episode. I love that comment. Uh, as for that deleted scene that uh, they refer to, that is... Uh, so there was a scene where Audrey goes back to her little spying hole in the Great Northern, and she's watching... Uh, Jacoby argue with like I think Sylvia her mom and she says you know Audrey made this happen anyway she pushed him when she was three years old and Audrey's really upset and she closes the thing and walks away and then we hear the conversation continue but she doesn't and Jacoby says no 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 that's not how Johnny's condition arose this is a psychological condition it's not a physical one but Audrey doesn't hear that so in that original writing the idea was She's hurt and confused by many things, and this is kind of what forces her finally to be like, I'm going to One-Eyed Jacks. So that's what they're referring to there. Me personally, uh, I've had an interesting relationship with this episode. The first time I wrote about it, I was pretty lukewarm. I appreciated some aspects, but I felt that it suffered from being the lead-up to the finale. I've also heard other podcasts echo this sentiment, but over time, this has developed into a favorite of mine. Like, really like one of my absolute favorites of the series and now i think that in media res quality is actually one of the episode's strengths i love that it's just like a part of this ongoing story and you're in this serial that's so much fun and now i want to share some of my uh, readings from old pieces non-spoiler of course for the 2008 episode guide i wrote an early review that uh like the one for the previous episode i actually disagree with quite a lot uh, very strongly in this case the next scene is the most interesting in the episode though is probably also the least important andy walks into the sheriff's office slowly tries to engage lucy in conversation and is rejected though andy started off as a good-hearted sensitive cop he's lately been turning into a dim-witted pratt-falling police force gomer pile yet here he's soft-spoken again almost whispering as he tenderly tries to find out why Lucy's been ignoring him. Deschanel repeatedly cuts to a silent, morose reverse shot of Andy that's so oddly affecting, it almost had me thinking Lynch was in the director's seat, though the spatial awkwardness of Cooper's position in the first scene suggested otherwise. 
Anyway, the first few scenes of the episode pull you in gently and intriguingly, but most of the episode falls into the build-up to the end of the season trap. All the seeds are planted for the climactic season finale, but since that's the next episode, we don't get much satisfaction here. As with Laura's funeral, also written by Harley Payton, we visit with the different characters one by one, but we don't get a sense of how all the stories tie together, and it feels a little rote. Everything's in place for the cliffhangers to follow up in episode 7, but unlike episode 4, which delivered plot points with atmosphere, menace, and intrigue, there's not much excitement here. In 2015, I wrote about this episode again for my Tumblr episode ranking, and I had a very different take on it. So I talked about all of the great moments in the uh, in the episode, ending with the Jacoby and Maddie uh, exchange, and I said, a VHS tape and a phone call is jolting in their own way as those found in Lost Highway. There, you have a list of some of the most iconic moments in all of Twin Peaks, and every single one of them can be found on screen in this episode, like a fairy tale cottage at the end of a wooded road. As the forthcoming entries on this rewatch will make clear, I am a big fan of David Lynch's output on Twin Peaks. Who isn't? When I first watched the series, before I trained my eye to see the big picture of what Twin Peaks adds up to, warts and all, I was mostly in it for Lynch, and was always a bit disappointed when his name didn't pop up in the opening credits. But if someone was to ask me, how good can Twin Peaks be without Lynch directing, I would present them this episode with as much confidence as Audrey presents that cherry stem. Both Lynch and Frost are absent from episode 6, although we can detect Frost's watchful eye drawing the narrative threads together over Harley Payton's shoulder. Which also lacks even a whisper of the woods or the uncanny, except perhaps in the general ambiance of excitement, danger, and mystery. All the same, Six plays as if someone uncorked a bottle labeled Essence of Twin Peaks and let it waft across the screen. The elegance, the weirdness, the humor, the intelligence, and the thrill of season one are all present in this episode. And only Lynch's own episode two might serve as a more representative slice of what the show offers when all cylinders are firing. I'm going to save the rest of that for the shape of the show because it talks a little bit more about just the general context of what's upcoming without plot details. In 2016, for the uh, Reddit rewatch, which I then turned into my first time viewer companion a few years later, I'm going to read the whole comment that I left on that because it's not too long. This episode is a small jewel in the crown of season one. It advances all the plots, exciting us for what's to come, while also allowing us to relax and savor the moment. In a sense, it's the best Twin Peaks could be as a tune-in weekly serialized TV show. Or maybe it's more accurate to call this storytelling form a miniseries. We're building to a climax, and it's hard to imagine how anything could follow whatever is about to happen, or how this sort of building tension could be repeated and sustained over a full-length season. This is really where Mark Frost's hand can be felt most strongly at the tiller, guiding his various narrative ships into port, to mix metaphors, even though he didn't write this one directly. It's Harley Payton's shining moment, despite the funeral episode getting him nominated for an Emmy. It's hard to think of a single character, maybe Pete only, who doesn't pull double or even triple duty in several crisscrossing storylines. That's one thing I love about the first season. The writers really weave a web that makes the entire community feel interconnected. At the same time, as I watch this for the upteenth time, I realize how much I'm appreciating atmospheric locales, character ticks, sharp dialogue, and musical cues, rather than really hanging on to what's going to happen next suspense and excitement. How could I? I practically got the episode memorized at this point. So while I come to praise season one, I also have to recognize that if this was the plateau Twin Peaks reached and stopped at, 
I doubt I would have rewatched it, let alone read, discussed, and written about it as much as I have. This episode is a gem not only because it plays so well the first time, but because it's embedded in a larger, more complex tapestry, even more fascinating if less perfect. This is one of the most solid hours of the whole show, and that solidity creates a firm foundation for the more ethereal elements to come. And on that note, we are going to move toward the shape of the show where I talk about, you know, how I rank this in terms of other episodes, some stuff that was created after the fact, like the Log Lady intros, and I talk about a viewer speculation from the time. So nobody knows anything, but here's what they thought if you want to hear it. So first off, this was ranked number seven on my uh, rankings on, on Tumblr. So that's very high, and without saying necessarily what the other ranked episodes are, I will note David Lynch directed uh, six episodes of this series. So this is number seven. That's pretty good. When the Twin Peaks cast appeared on Donahue, which I will link below, that's kind of an amazing uh, cultural moment to witness. Phil Donahue introducing five or six members of Twin Peaks. Also, Mark Frost is there. And there's some interesting speculation on that and all sorts of stuff. But he has a poll of the audience asking them, who do you think killed Laura Palmer? And these were the results. Dr. Jacoby, psychiatrist, 31%. Leo Johnson, truck driver, 17%. Jacques Renault, bartender, 11%. Bobby Briggs, football player, 11%. James Hurley, motorcyclist, 8%. Still Alive, 6%. Catherine Martell, sawmill manager, 4%. Benjamin Horn, hotel owner, 4%. Suicide, 3%. Mr. Palmer, Laura's father, 3%. Dale Cooper, FBI agent, 1%. Josie Packard, sawmill owner, 1%. So that's uh, at least this small, unscientific selection of, of uh, people, some of whom may not have even been watching the show, so take that with a grain of salt. But... You know, this is what they thought, uh, who they thought the killer might be. Another article is, Meanwhile, back at Twin Peaks, the mystery of Laura Palmer's murder may be solved, but now there's a new puzzle. Will the series thrive on Saturday night? Howard Rosenberg, Los Angeles Times, May 23rd, 1990. And again, this was published before the finale, so I'm not sure what he's talking about. The mystery has been solved. Maybe he's uh, predicting for the next episode. And Rosenberg writes, I'm exhausted. Here's toasting ABC's decision to renew Twin Peaks, despite its relatively modest ratings. Just love the show. But give me a break. I'm frankly relieved that tonight's episode, at 10 on channels 7, 3, 10, and 42, is scheduled to be the last of first-run Twin Peaks until fall. I need the breather. Although Twin Peaks is a red herring haven, Frost said that he and Lynch are not playing games and have known the identity of Laura's murderer since conceiving the series. It's someone you've already met, he said. We went back and forth with it, and the spotlight fell on different people at different times. A hundred different stories are left, Frost said. The murder of Laura has always just been the tip of the iceberg. It was never designed to carry the series. We'll come up with stories that are equally compelling. There will be more mysteries. Not the least of which may be ABC's decision to shift Twin Peaks to 10 p.m. Saturdays in the fall, behind the also-just-renewed China Beach. The common TV wisdom is that Saturday night audiences are generally older and more conservative. 
the antithesis of the core Twin Peaks viewers, whose advertiser-friendly demographics are responsible for earning the series a spot on the fall schedule. Can Twin Peaks transform its viewers into Saturday night sloths? People are watching this en masse, at dinner parties and whatever, said Frost, who sounds ecstatic about the new time slot. So now I'm going to read those memories from the Dugpa thread about the rest of season one. The user Audrey Horn wrote, I love this show. On Donahue, the other guy who's not Lynch, he says it's coming back next fall. Yay! Laura's not dead, right? The cousin is. I saw Vertigo. I know. By now, after Audrey muscled Battis and cried while watching Leland and smoked in the closet, I am fully on the Audrey Horn and Agent Cooper best characters ever on TV train. N. Needleman wrote, I watched the show live on ABC with my mom when I was about eight or nine, and then returned to it as a young teen when it was running on Bravo. My mother brought me in around episode two or three and made it clear she thought Leland was the killer. She did not elaborate much as to why, but she said his reaction was too much, re Laura's death. I was afraid of Leo and was fascinated by Dr. Jacoby and his glasses. Here's a comment I wrote for my rewatch of like random episodes uh, after I finished Journey Through Twin Peaks. For this episode, I said, at times in the second season, Twin Peaks, quote, feels like a TV show in the worst sense. Like it's just marking time week by week and has no higher ambitions than to fill its hour-long slot. But episodes like this feel like a TV show in the very best sense. We feel like we're part of some ongoing, ever-unfolding story with characters whose personalities and situations fuel the action. It isn't a standalone like the pilot, or even episodes 14 and 29, which, despite touching on many subplots, build towards set pieces that speak for themselves. It's a part of something bigger, and that's a wonderful feeling. I even find myself invested and excited in Josie's shenanigans, which I couldn't care the least about in early season 2. I love that sense that everything is part of something bigger, which season 1 really delivers, even on rewatches. I had an all-roads-lead-to-Rome conception of the show when I first watched it. On alt.tv.twinpeaks, I think they called this the G-U-T, Got Grand Unifying Theory, with the idea that everything, the mill plot, the drug deals, Laura's murder, Cooper's dream, was connected and would lead to startling, thrilling revelations about the corruption of the town and the darkness of the woods. The mystery seemed all-encompassing. Episodes like this really play into that sense. And then I'll read the rest of my Tumblr piece on the episode ranking of number seven. Watching it during a marathon feels like you're hitting that perfect buzz after several drinks. Everything is illuminated, and you just know things are going to get even smoother and more fun after this. Of course, that blissful optimism, referred to by Aldous Huxley as a state of uninhibited and belligerent euphoria which follows the ingestion of the third cocktail, is almost always misleading in reality, and in a sense, it is misleading in Twin Peaks too. The subsequent climax of the season will be wonderful, but not quite as magical as this episode. And after that, the second season alternates moments of sheer brilliance with long stretches of disappointment. And even those highlights won't at all be in the spirit of this episode. What we have here is a shining beacon of what Twin Peaks might have been, had everything gone according to plan. A weekly TV show matching entertainment with innovation colorful characters coupled with narrative twists and turns, and best of all, a world so rich and full we could explore any corner and turn up something of interest. That's the Twin Peaks that the critics, correctly, feared they would lose when the series was extended for a 22-episode series. That's the Twin Peaks that the press still celebrates today whenever the show comes up. That's the Twin Peaks that viewers in 1990 longed for when the very next episode on this list opened with one of the show's most alienating and antagonizing gestures. And yet, the most fantastic moments of Twin Peaks are yet to come, in the chronology of the show itself, and even more so on this rewatch, 
whose entire point is to save the best for last. As we prepare for our final ascent, let's recall the point of that Huxley witticism. It served not only as a gentle mockery of the limited ephemeral pleasures of alcohol, but to pave the way for a vision of far more profound states of consciousness. The clear road through the woods ends now with this entry, but the rewatch does not. To quote another time-bending exercise, where we're going, we don't need roads. For the next time preview, uh, aired at the end of this episode, we see Jacoby uh, seeing Maddie and saying, oh my god. We see Cooper showing Jacques the chip with a missing piece and saying, I'm a friend of Leo's. We see Leo violently grabbing Shelly and yelling, you made me do this. And then a timer goes off and explodes into flames. And Bobby calls out for Shelly as the door closes behind him, revealing Leo standing in the shadows can't wait to watch this next episode this is going to be fun for the log lady introduction recorded many years later uh, well three years later uh, lynch wrote and directed her saying that beauty is in the eye of the beholder and uh, then she continues to sort of play on this meaning of you know is beauty in the eye in terms of observation or if you're looking at the eye is that the beauty like she kind of he loves this sort of linguistic ambiguity it describes eyes as mirrors of the soul and says that it refers to those horrible times when we see the eyes that have no soul. There is no beauty if the eyes are soulless. All I can really assume with this is that Lynch is riffing on one-eyed jacks. Although obviously the meaning goes far beyond that source of inspiration. But I would imagine, you know, he was reading little summaries to remind him what was in each episode and going off of those. That's all I can think of for this. And here is the first minute from the next episode, the season one finale. So fair warning if you haven't watched it yet. But uh, again, uh, it's, it's it's not a start that... Um, it's not like this episode where you find out right away how Cooper and Audrey resolve their situation in the first minute. It's uh, more stretched out than that. So you can probably listen to it for a teaser if you want. So far, episodes have begun with Ducks on a Lake, the majesty of the Great Northern Hotel over a waterfall, the Horn family eating an icy dinner in silence, the somber Palmer house, and twice in a row, a moon in a field of black. Episode 7 fades up on... palm trees? A warm orange sky, sunlight diffuse behind the palm fronds, frame silhouettes of several trees as the camera pans down and to the left, toward majestic clouds low on the horizon and the long, thin trunks of those palms. Sharp eyes may notice an odd line running horizontally through the frame, 
a wire suspended between the leaning palms like a hammock, perhaps? As the camera motion switches direction, panning right across a reddish-orange lagoon, jagged hills outlined against a sunrise, the sun itself peeking out from a low cloud, we may notice some more faint lines crisscrossing the image, and despite the matching sounds of gulls and rolling waves, we may begin to suspect what is eventually revealed. The lines are seams, and this is a photographic mural observed in close-up. Before we get to the edge of the mural, to confirm this, a three-dimensional miniature palm tree trunk crosses the frame, both intensifying and drawing attention to the flat illusion with its odd spatial relation. The camera finally reaches a blue curtain, drawn along the edge of this wall as if to create a proscenium for Dr. Jacoby's appealing, if artificial, utopia. And our view settles on the other side of this curtain, where a door opens and James Hurley and Donna Hayward enter the therapist's office. Donna, still in cap and heavy scarf, removes her winter mittens as if already sinking into the Hawaiian ambiance, but neither one of them looks relaxed as they glance around and wonder what to do next. There have been no cuts this whole time, and the characters appear in a medium-wide shot, centered in the dark composition now that the mood of the space has been established. Credits ran from the opening fade, and written and directed by Mark Frost comes up immediately after Donna asks, where should we start? The camera follows James to the left as he leans past a large, heavily decorated orange and black lantern, looking at something that has caught his eye. The minute ends. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can become a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Tomorrow we begin the season one finale. And uh, there's a lot to say about this episode. A lot to say about season one in general. And uh, I'll talk a little bit about the podcast generally and where I see it going from here uh, as well at that point. So see you then. <laughs>